All right. Hey, you all. This is KJ. Welcome back to His Heritage Podcast. Today, we're going to have a little bit of a different episode than normal. Dom, our buddy Mac, and myself are going to take a little time to reflect on the works of uh, theologian and Christian philosopher G.K. Chesterton. We talk about a lot of awesome, interesting topics, some of which are gratefulness, mysticism, free will, and how to deal with some of the apparent paradoxes that are present in Christian faith. As always, we encourage you to follow us on Instagram and to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. All right, everybody. Well, episode eight? Is this episode eight? It can't be episode eight. Is that what it is? I think it's episode eight. Hey, uh, if you're listening to this and it isn't episode eight, our apologies, but that's pretty cool that we might even forget what number episode we're at. That's right. Um, and so so everyone knows uh, today's episode is actually a pretty cool little treat. Uh, we kind of want to let you guys all behind the veil of kind of KJ and myself and our guest today, Mac, uh, Mac Rom, but um, kind of let you in behind the veil where what we do is we really kind of hash out ideas together and we sit and we talk and we make you know good sense of what we think what we are trying to you know gain new understanding on even Uh, and through that process uh, we typically get to um, a new spot in our uh, spiritual life in our family life everywhere and we and and so we're kind of going to walk you through the process really of just thinking um, and how we do it, and um, what you're going to probably see is maybe us disagree with each other a little bit on this episode. Hopefully, hopefully, I hope we disagree about something, but there's a there's a chance we don't. Um, but that being said, um, and so what we'll do today is we're going to talk to you guys a little bit about Christian philosophy. We're going to talk probably a good little bit about a man named G.K. Chesterton. We might even talk about some Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But really, you know, the the point of this is to kind of help your brain move its gears. And, you know, uh, it's like, uh, I don't want to say it's like learning to ride a bike, but um, we're going to show you how we ride our bike uh, and come to new ideas today. Yeah, and how once we stumble upon something like i mean i think that the the if we get down to the to the bottom of it the reason why we're talking about what we're talking about today is because you've read orthodoxy by gk chesterton and it really moved you in the direction of maybe some new ideas some different ideas and you've been thinking and it's pretty cool to come together with people that are a part of your community and actually test out whether these things are worthwhile or not now with someone like chesterton we know that these things are what we're going to learn from him is going to be valuable, but kind of our philosophical ideas that we're drawing from it. It's cool to bat them off of, of people that you're close with, that you trust, that you know are like-minded, but you know, you're going to be able to, to kind of uh, work through these ideas. So it's yeah. cool. And so um, today Mac Rom is on the podcast with us and um, big reason why Mac is here with us today. Um, he is someone that we, you know, behind the scenes, and you may have heard him on a previous episode. He was on our um, our Wesleyan ep- our Wesleyan episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was fact checking us and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but he is one of the guys that me and KJ run to and kind of run things by him too yeah, and sure. see, hey, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. What do you think about this? And 
I think you're going to see a lot of action between Mac and KJ and myself today when we're even just trying to figure out things live on air. What do you think, Mac? Yeah. Um, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you we're know, so glad you're here. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to be here. I don't know um, you know, as much about the, uh, the early church fathers uh, as you guys do, but um, yeah, I'm excited for our conversation, see where it leads us, and um, yeah, talk through some ideas for sure. Well, perfect. Well, let's let's kind of let's kind of break into this thing and have some fun with it. And so, um, hopefully, we learn something today, everybody. But we're gonna have fun. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, first of all, so if we're even gonna talk about G.K. Chesterton at all, he would want us to have fun. He is hysterical, um, and so you know I'm not gonna put it in the description of this podcast. But if you'd like to start, you know, reading some of the things that we're reading, um, a good author to start with is G.K. Chesterton. Um, a little background on Chesterton uh, for everyone uh, as we get into this. Uh, he was um, he was an Englishman uh, in the Anglican Church, uh, and so well the Catholic. Catholic, Catholic. My fault. His beef was the mm-hmm. Anglican, yeah. and so. Chesterton, uh, in probably the late 1800s, uh, came into a relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote the book Orthodoxy in 1908, but he wrote 100 books, and he was also um, like a co-author in like 200 books. The guy is, before even being a Christian, he was a well-known author. Yeah. Um, and so with him, uh, he went from being an atheist, agnostic t- type of person uh, into being a Christian and then found himself and fell into the Catholic, uh, tradition, uh, which is super interesting because what, um, a lot of our listeners, uh, a person you probably all know is C.S. Lewis. Um, and so C.S. Lewis, uh, it, with mere Christianity and those books. So a lot of people and scholars will say, you know, at first I found C.S. Lewis and I read mere Christianity and it got me to this spot. And then it led me to Chesterton. And then I read Chesterton, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is even better than C.S. Lewis. But it didn't get me to the point of being Catholic. Uh, and so there's yeah. there's the uh, there's the inerrant, uh, not inerrant, but there's the um, kind of like sub-goal of Chesterton at times to kind of lure you into being a Roman Catholic. And we have lots of friends and family that are our Roman Catholic brothers. And I'm telling you, Chesterton does a good job at making you be a fan of that tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and he is that totally. He is utterly convinced and explicit about his conviction that the Catholic Church is the church, you know. And I, I don't know specific details about how he felt about people outside the church, but explicit in his desire for folks to be members of the church, the the Catholic Church. Yeah, he has this one really cool saying about the Catholic Church. Um, but so this is how we think about things, right? So my take on this saying that I'm about to say is that it applies to, you know, the church more broadly as the church, but he believes, I I feel like if we were to ask him, he would believe that it applies to the Catholic church specifically. And so he has this like long, you know, thing about, uh, reasons why I'm a Catholic and there's a, a million of them. Uh, but one of them, he says, um, the Catholic church is the only church that is, the Catholic Church is the only thing in the world that is superior mm-hmm. and does not act supercilious. And so what that means is he's saying that the Catholic Church is superior to all things on earth, meaning that it is the highest form of humanity, uh, which we all believe about the church as a body, not the physical building the church. Little C Catholic. Exactly, exactly. And so 
what he's saying is the full body of the church, what it looks like, and you know, in, in the bride of Christ, what it looks like, it is superior to all things on this planet. Because what it is, is it is God's presence dwelling. But he's saying it doesn't act supercilious. And supercilious means the the sense of, I am superior to you. Like, mm-hmm. uh, if I was KJ's boss, um, I would be like, hey, KJ, can you uh, do that, you know, spreadsheet for me? And KJ's like, no, why do you want me to do that? I'm like, because I'm your boss. And so I can tell you what to do. That would be me acting supercilious. Here's a, let's get, here's a dictionary definition. You yeah. ready? Yeah. Oxford. Behaving. Or looking as though one thinks one is superior to others. Supercilious. You nailed it. Good job. There we go. Dom's big brains, one point. <laughs> um, I, I did have a, a negative point earlier, though. Um, so, anyways, on that, um, what what uh, the what the little C Catholic? So, what the church does instead? We should probably it, explain that. Yeah, go ahead. Explain the difference between big C Catholic and little C Catholic. So, Catholic. The word Catholic just means like universal, like that's what it means. So when we say the Catholic Church, you know, like in conversation with people that we know, if I start talking about, well, they're a member of the Catholic Church, we all kind of perceive that they're talking about the Roman Church, but that's not necessarily um, n- uh, like native to the term itself so the term just means universal so when we say catholic little c like lowercase c what we mean is the church all the whole church so we'll use that term sometimes always specifying little c that's what that's what we mean is like the whole universal church all of the the um followers of jesus believers in the gospel exactly yes and so what that really um you, what that could take us into in, in a second uh, is really the Apostolic Creed, um, and so we can we'll chat about the Apostolic Creed in a second. Um, but so the Catholic Church, little C, not acting supercilious would be like like the uh, like the like the sisters going and staying in hospitals and serving their life, uh, washing feet, um, being with the least of these, uh, Jesus being friends with sinners, like being with the lowly. And so, yes, even though Jesus is superior to anything that's ever walked on this planet, he does not act supercilious, even in the being of God. And so that is one of Chesterton's, you know, um, big reasons why he even is a Christian is saying that I've never met something that is superior, but doesn't act like it. I've never been around something like that. And so that that logical and so in that, that ph- philosophic argument mm-hmm. Uh, for Christianity is huge. The fact that it is the one thing, if you believe it truly in your heart, that it is superior. Like, if you believe it truly, you will believe that God and Jesus and that your religion is superior. But it doesn't act superior, and there's nothing else like that. Yeah, the expression of that superiority is not that you behave in such a way that you're better than everyone else. Yeah, like, In fact, the opposite. Quite literally. Yeah, which is great. And so and so you're saying Chesterton's point was that the Catholic Church, and in his mind when he says Catholic Church, he's talking about the Roman Church, right? I believe he's, yeah, he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah and yeah. so he's saying that the, the Roman Church actually exemplifies that principle mm-hmm. really well. Yeah. And so to dive a little deeper into that, he also has the, um, he also tells a story about the fence. So this is... First, Dude. yeah, we'll tell this fence story in a second. But first, let's talk about the Apostolic Creed, and we're gonna test Max CCD skills here. 
CCD is the um, the uh, Christian school for well, Mac. What is CCD? It's like it's like a Sunday school in um, you know for the Catholic Church, but it's not on Sundays. It's you know during the week after school in the and, evenings. And it's for kids of what ages? It's like uh, it's usually start in elementary school and then you end um after confirmation i think this is actually cool it's funny because we've been we've been wanting for so long to have like someone as a representative of the catholic church on but it's kind of cool as this being like our little bit of a soft launch into the into the catholic church because well neither of you guys are necessarily experts on catholicism no you both spent your whole childhood into high school age within the church and so you do have experience and i think it's it's cool it's cool because i think that a lot of the people probably the vast majority of the people who are going to be listening to this are either going to be folks like me who didn't grow up in church or folks who grew up in protestant traditions that are completely unfamiliar with this so i think that your guys experiences in and of themselves are going to be super valuable for people like i know that that they have been for me and just getting a grip on what the the catholic tradition is about so i think that it's a it's a great place to start well it's super interesting for yourself there's so many traditions that you kj that you hold that come out of the catholic tradition specifically but that you don't know that you hold these traditions and so an example for most of the laymen the people that just go to church uh, they aren't a pastor or whatever um for most of them I don't know how many of them could tell you what lies in the apostolic creed. Now, almost every denomination believes in the apostolic creed. Like it's, I, I don't want to speak for every denomination, but I, it's, it's pretty universally accepted. And if someone was going to go into an ecumenical sense, um, meaning like the unity of all churches, um, the, probably the first thing that would get brought up is like, Hey guys, can we agree on the apostolic creed? And then we'll go from there. Yeah. And then everyone would just start nodding their heads and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But so, um, so jumping into that, Mac, do do you think you could rip an apostolic creed right now off the top of your head, or are you gonna have to read it? No, I mean I haven't I haven't been to, to Catholic mass in over ten years. Um, but I mean I'm I'm reading through the creed right now, and and I'm like, yeah, yeah I I know this. And, uh, <laughs> but but <clears throat> real quick though, the the Apostles' Creed is. This is like a shorthand synthesis, uh, synthesization. So, is that it's what word? we believe, creed, but, right? But it's I, but isn't it like isn't it like a a shorthand version of the broader creeds that all get brought together into this simplified format that we're all just gonna? Yeah, I think I think kind of to bring it back to your first um, few podcasts is that this would be like your primary issues. Like we all agree, yeah, okay, on good. on these, you know. What, what we're about to say in the Apostles' Creed. And that's our primary issue. If you don't believe in that, we can't go to church together. S super cool. Like, uh, I know we think we're doing a new thing um, at times with the unity um, or even with keeping the main thing the main thing. But every Sunday at Mass in Catholic Church, they're like, hey, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Communion and let's say the Apostolic Creed and say the Lord's Prayer. Those things happen every time. Um, but the reason I'm asking Mac to read the Apostolic, uh, the apostolic Creed is because of the use of the word catholic in yeah, it yeah and so i was just about to ask you like yeah you know if, if a whole bunch of uh you know different traditions believe in the apostolic creed you know if we're talking about catholicism or 
the Anglican Church or Presbyterian Church, like all these people subscribe to the to the Apostles' Creed. But in the creed that I always said, you say I believe in one holy ap- or one holy Catholic Church, yeah, with a big capital C in there. And so you're like, <laughs> well, you're like, what do all the other? Did they just swap out their tradition? No, 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 no. They also no, 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 no. <laughs> one one, so one the, Anglican one church. holy Anglican church. No, so like, I went to an Episcopal church the other day, and they said we believe in one holy uh, one holy Catholic Apostolic Church, right? Um, and so it, they are little C. So everyone says that term when they say the apostolic creed, like say you're a super, uh, a liturgical church. You're very, you have a, you know, you're wearing robes and everything. Uh, and that's a church where they still say the apostles creed, um, where I would totally be down to say the apostles creed in our church and our church would probably accept it as well. Um, the, the, but they wouldn't, you'd still wouldn't take out the word Catholic. Um, because that word Catholic just means now, now you could substitute it for a synonym and the synonym would be like, we believe in one unified church. That would probably be one a, holy universal church or unified yeah. church is actually probably better. Yeah. That would be your like synonym, but Catholic means that dude, let me just say when I, when I was early into Christianity and I was first going to church here at difference makers church, which is a Wesleyan church. Uh, one of the things that I asked Pastor Clark and this, I realize now that this is kind of a new Christian question, but I asked Pastor Clark, like, dude, what are the things that define Christians as Christians? And he pointed me to the Apostles' Creed. No way. He said, he said, read the Apostles' Creed. That's what, that's the heart of what Christianity is all about. The key things that everybody buys into. Boom. All right. So just saying that does, that definitely has the, the stamp of approval from the, the tradition that we're a part of. No doubt about it, which everyone does. Basically yeah. everybody inside. Yeah. Okay. Well, even N.T. Wright is like, yeah, can we disagree on that? He, you're saying he says that out, speaking outward to the broader church. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Like N.T. Wright's like, yeah, like let's just start Who's that. an Anglican? Yeah, who's an Anglican? Um, go ahead, Mac. All right, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From hence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Dang. Amen. And, and, and big all, amen. Big amen. And, and the thing about that is where denominations split on it is just how to achieve those things that they just talked about. So like we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Catholics believe in like a confessional, like, like we believe in going to your friend or to your pastor or whoever it may be in a, in a confident way. Um, but there is, you know, like all those things we still are doing. We just are doing it in a different tradition. Right. Absolutely. Um, the, the, the reason we asked Mac to read that really was because we wanted to expound upon that term Catholic, but also if KJ, um, I think what they did here and, um, in, in reading the apostles creed every Sunday was keeping the main thing, the main thing. And at times we feel like we're doing a new thing. KJ, myself, Mac, we feel like we're doing a new thing by like, Oh, let's unify the church or let's, um, you know, focus on first order, second order, and th- let's focus on first order issues and the second order and third order issues we'll figure out. Um, KJ, if you could read that quote from GK Chesterton talking about um, 1800 years ago. So a little backdrop 
for it. Um, Chesterton was, you know, he was struggling with his, you know, Christianity, his relationship with God, whether he believed it or didn't. And then he found himself stumbling onto what he thought was he was uncovering gold in Christianity. And he has this quote. Well, and it seems like his basic story is I rejected Christianity on at early and then was trying to seek truth. And in my seeking of truth, I basically constructed a somewhat degraded version of Christianity. And he just ended up there in his pursuit of the truth. But his quote was about speaking about his young self was that he, he, he would try to be 10 minutes ahead of the truth. But in reality, he was about 1800 years behind it. Mm, come on, come on. It's, it's, it's a hundred percent true. Like, yeah, like I, I feel like, um, yeah, there's a there's a we have a cool episode that's going to come out after this episode, so I don't want to ruin what the main top talking point is, but um, just like talking about like this like confidence you have in yourself at times, uh, and then it's really not true because someone else really already like broke through that barrier for you. Now, yes, you can uniquely have relationships, and God can give you you a unique revelation, um, but realistically like there are people that you know have walked this faith out to to their death and have uncovered fruit and gold and all these different things for you um and chesterton was just like oh man i just found myself agreeing with the catholic church which is the oldest church yeah yeah it's good mm-hmm. that's yeah. good um yeah and yeah, I mean, and I don't know, one of the things that I thought was, was I don't want to, I was, I think I'm going to take us off topic. Why don't we stay where we're, where we're going for a minute? I had another, another okay. Chesterton thing, but why don't we, we stay where we're at for a minute? Okay. You, you want to stay, you want to stay on, um, just the idea of kind of this false, um, sense of discovery. Yeah. And just, and, and well, more, more the idea that, that. There is okay. This is this was the quote that I was thinking of, and maybe it's related. It was, okay. he, and I'm not going to get it right because I don't have it written down exactly word for word. But what he talked about was that for the vast majority of human history, the basic assumption was that like the meta story about the world was real, and that our individual expressions, the meta story being like the the especially in the West, being the Christian worldview that. Basically, there's a good God who made everything. At some point along the line, things went wrong and that Jesus is redeeming everything. And then what people had been doing forever until the modern period had been really all their philosophical efforts and stuff like that were aimed at figuring out how to better push toward that end, which was already determined. But then he talks about how modern men actually flipped it. So what he said was, I'm trying to find, I wrote down a, I wrote down a brief explanation of it but he said he basically said that um i'm trying to find this quote oh yeah here it is here it is here it is um he said something to the effect of that man man historically has doubted himself and his ability to pursue the truth but hasn't doubted the truth itself and what happens in modernity now is that men actually trust themselves a whole lot and now they're doubting the truth itself the baseline under uh, that's undergirding it and so 
he launches this huge attack that's right at the heart of basically like modern philosophy, which he's writing in the in the early 20th century. But the big pushes in the culture really haven't changed that much from his time. And then because it's funny because Don brought up C.S. Lewis before, and I'm a huge admirer of C.S. Lewis. Like that's mm -hmm. my favorite author ever. I whenever I get whenever I get free time that I can devote to reading fiction or whatever, I'm always going to something C.S. Lewis first because I think that he's awesome. And so he is 40 years down the line from Chesterton. He's making the same critiques, and then I think we see the same thing uh, today. And I thought that, that was a super profound thing, that that basic idea that the, the, the right way to place your faith and your doubt has actually been flipped. Mm. So, so Chesterton expounds on that. Mm -hmm. so, so Chesterton actually talks about how uh, the only thing that you should not have confidence in is self. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he goes, he's, uh, the, the modern man has flipped, and he says, the modern man has flipped, and now you place your confidence in your self-assurance, right? You place your self-confidence that I am right and that like I know the way and all these things. And what it leads to is the absence of free will in a sense. And he makes that argument a little bit. But the big thing he's saying is the only thing that you should have no confidence in is yourself. Mm -hmm. And then when you have no confidence in yourself, you are free. And then free will exists when the confidence of yourself evaporates. And then you step into the confidence of God. And you can begin to bend yourself now that you've recognized your own limitations. You can actually begin to bend yourself around the plan that God has and see yourself in it. And yeah, mm -hmm. it was awesome. Oh, dude. And then he talks and like what he talks about with God's plan is like, he talks about like how there's the perfect level of God giving you knowledge and knowing things and the mysticism of God where the unknown is enough and the known is enough and that together it makes it free and beautiful. You probably are ripping up a quote right now on that. No, it was just, it was, yeah. Yeah, no, keep going. Keep going on mm -hmm. that. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll fill in my thing that I was mm -hmm. thinking. So I, I, I find, I find it really interesting that, um, Chesterton, uh, was of, uh, the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Um, because, like I guess just it's probably preconceived notions of myself that I typically think of like uh, Catholic theologians or Catholic you know like like Augustine or like whoever uh, I just think of those folks as more like scholastic mm -hmm. and less ethereal mm -hmm. um, and Chesterton's quite the opposite like yeah. it is it is very it's anyone that goes off and starts reading Chesterton it is a lot of meat on the bone every sentence it's a lot like reading c.s lewis it's packed with meaning yep you're yeah right. like you, dense. you you read sentence by sentence and instead of page by page if you're used to that um it's not a it, he's 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 a poet at heart even 100 percent. um and so he's trying to paint a picture and he comes back and circles to a point mm -hmm. um which is um which is interesting uh but i think that's my broader point is that it is it is refreshing but then i'm like oh my gosh i'm I tried to be 10 minutes ahead, but now I'm 1800 years behind again, just with my own preconceived notions. And then like, Oh, Chesterton wrote orthodoxy in 1908. Yeah. You know, and he's writing it, believing that in 1908, he was the one who was missing it from the dudes who experienced the whole Jesus thing in the first hundred years after mm -hmm. he died. And then, and really figured it out mm -hmm. or not figured it out, but you know what I'm saying? Knew what was going on. The thing that I was thinking of that I thought was really cool, um, was in the very beginning he describes 
you know, like, so he does all this seeking and he, he tells this story. I don't know if you remember this in the very beginning of the book. And basically he tells this story where he's saying that imagine that there's a dude who sets off on a boat to go be an explorer. And so like, let's just, we'll, we'll, let's use language that's more for people in our geographic area. So like you, you leave from ocean city, Maryland on a boat and you are going to discover new lands mm -hmm. and you finally hit shore and you think that you've discovered some brand new Island that no one has ever seen before. And you're ready to go plant the American flag. You're stoked i got this new thing but then you find out that you're in a part of virginia beach that just didn't happen to have any people around or whatever and so there's this excitement paired with this familiarity and he said that he felt like the human experience was a lot like that where we are hit the, the quote that he used was that the there's the marriage of welcome like you feel like you're at home and wonder as you exist in this world and it's so good yeah and what he was saying was that as he as he went to pursue like at, on a philosophical sense he went to pursue what is true he found that at the bottom of everything was that like that that inexplicable feeling of being so in awe of the world and yet feeling at home in it mm -hmm. and so he built his philosophy around that and then he found christianity and he was like oh my gosh this is the perfect explanation of every single human being's experience because we all have this feeling of being the man who feels like he discovered something new just to find out, oh, I'm home. I'm home. Yeah. And so like, let's unpack that just a little, little bit. Like that idea of like that God ministers to all of us in that way that whatever, if you're listening right now, whatever your path uh, is to finding Christ you are discovering new things about yourself. You're discovering new things about God. You're discovering new things about your family and your friends and just the community that you live in. And you're like, this is brand new to me. I feel different towards the lady at the cash register. I feel different about myself. Mm -hmm. This is new. I've never felt this before. But all at the same time, all at the same time, you have this overwhelming feeling of being at home mm -hmm. where you can open the fridge and you can kick your feet up on the coffee table yeah. with your shoes on. And you're, and you're like, why do I have this sense of, you know, adventure? I have this sense of adventure married with I'm at home and I feel like my heart is at rest and I, and I feel like I belong. It, it, it is it is a perfect depiction of a journey with God. And instead of it being like, because um, like if someone listens to that story on the surface, it just sounds like an idiot left uh, left Ocean City and found Virginia Beach. Um, but it's actually just the perfect analogy of explore, exploration married with home at the same time. Yeah, and the fulfillment that comes along with that, with the that the actual the the fulfilling life is the one that has that embrace of home and yet that sense of adventure, and that is what the life of a follower of Jesus really ought to be like. You're 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 at home twenty four seven, but you're exploring twenty four seven, yeah. and you're you're on a you're on an adventure. It, it, I always, it, I, I know it could be like a little like, I don't know. Christianese or whatever, like cliche. Um, but uh, whenever like someone I know, you know, finds a relationship with Christ or whatever, maybe I'm like, get ready. You're about to go on an adventure of a lifetime. And, and I know that was said to me when I first found Christ. Um, and it, but it's, it's true. 
and it holds true and it's been a it's been a full encompassing adventure too not just you know my soul but also like my soul married with my mind my body everything you know in in different places physically um it's this all-encompassing person this all-encompassing adventure uh, it, it it is i i love that quote in the beginning of the book um i do say, go it, ahead, one more time. say it one more time the yeah, quote. Go ahead, go ahead. um the which one the one the the that that there's the marriage of welcome and wonder which i think that was not necessarily i i don't know if that was word for word but that was like my and that was right off the very top of it. I mean, I think that's in the first couple paragraphs of the introduction of the book. Yeah, is the the marriage of welcome and wonder. And he just used that story as an illustration to get that point across that there's that that's what the that's what he he said that the human experience is one of that on being in a world that is like so awe-inspiring and wondrous that you kind of sometimes look around and are like what the heck but at the same time, you know that you belong here and that you belong in a part of this grander scheme of things. It, one of the examples he talked about later was that um, he was like, he was like, it, it, I forget what the animal that he said, but he said some animal. I'll use an alligator. He was like, it's an awesome thing to be able to imagine an alligator. But to realize that an alligator exists in the world is actually even far more magical. And it's like this really wild. It's this this. Yeah, I don't know that uh, that example actually maybe wasn't helpful. Well, so so. He tells a story about um, leaving, you know, one island. I don't know if it was like he left England and found another part of England or whatever in a yacht, um, just like a boat, whatever. Uh, but then he gives this further explanation. I'll just read it. Um, but I have a peculiar, a peculiar reason for mentioning the man in a yacht who discovered England. For I am that man in a yacht. I discovered England. I do not see how this book can avoid being egotistical. And I do not quite see... To tell the truth, how it can avoid being dull. dull. Dullness will, however, free the man from the charge which I most lament, the charge of being flippant. Mere light sophistry. Sophistry? Gosh, man. <laughs> Guys, prepare to read this book. Is the thing that I happen to despise most of all things, and is perhaps a wholesome fact that this is the thing of which I am generally accused. And so... In, in this, he's talking about him being that person, which we're all talking about being that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but he still can give give roses or still can like give credit to a dullness because at least the dullness can explain itself completely. Mm-hmm. you know and and but then without that, you're never the man on the yacht on the adventure. It, it's very interesting. I do want to talk, go, if you have something, go ahead, but I do want to talk about a little bit um, about his quote with the fence. and why. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a good direction to go into. Before we get too far, um, you know, like with the, the home and the wonder, um, I think that, like, on a smaller scale, most people who come to know the Lord, um, you know, like when they've, when they, start going to church and and you know start becoming into a community there is a sense of like oh like this is where i'm supposed to be Mm -hmm. like there is that sense of like i'm supposed this is home you know and then you kind of like uh the the wonder part is is crazy too i'm reading um crazy love by by uh francis chan yeah and like in the beginning in uh in his first chapter he's like uh you know he talks about like you know think about how ridiculous the universe is 
and like how like there's like 350 trillion galaxies and like we're one planet in one galaxy and and that's just the ones we know of and he's like you know but then also think about like I think it's, it's like a caterpillar he's like a caterpillar has 274 muscles in its head it's like <laughs> You, you know, first off, you know who can, who found that out. Yeah. But second, it's like, you know, he didn't have to make it that detailed, but yeah. he did. You know, and like, there's just this this awe of creation, mm-hmm. but also this sense of like, oh, like I'm a part of the story too. Yeah, you know? and I see where I fit. It's yeah, in everything. And I'm a part of yeah. And it's like the more you grow close to him, it doesn't actually alleviate those two things. Both of those grow deeper simultaneously with yeah. each other your mm-hmm. your awe and wonder and your sense feel of, and your sense of belonging yeah grow uh what would it be like in a in a linear relationship yeah mm. yeah 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 for sure gosh it's all encompassing I, lo- I love it. it's everywhere and but that's that's god he's consistent in all things that's so good that's so good i love that yeah i almost wonder if that like that feeling of home or or is because like we're innately drawn back to God, you know, like we're, you know, if you're living in sin and then you, you know, get touched by the Lord and and then you have conviction, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, when you start to live how the Lord wants you to live or like you are like, you're drawn closer to God. So that's where that sense of belonging is because we belong like it's back in the garden. Yeah. Like, in communion with God. With him, yeah. Yeah. For sure. This was, let me read this quote. This will be the last thing and okay. we'll move on to the fence thing because this was what I was thinking of. This, hey, C.S. Lewis, we had to loop him in. Yeah, we have to. All right, so this is, this is, um, yeah, this was, this was the quote from Mere Christianity. This is at the very end of it. The last chapter of that book is just, oh, okay. So he says, <laughs> uh, and I think that this speaks to both the specifically to the belonging, but then also to the wonder. So he says, it's something like that with Christ and us. The more we get uh, what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novels, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. And in that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings, natural desires. And so it's like, dude, that's that's why it feels like that yeah. when you get in there. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I thought that, that that little passage was so awesome. Um, and it was, it was bouncing around my mind the whole time we're talking about it. Well, I mean, it, like, right, like Jesus is the answer, right? But like when you look at, the world and everything and you look at identity crisis um and you look at your own personal identity crisis throughout the history of kj throughout the history of mac and dom you look at that personal identity crisis and you know that longing question that they always say in um what's that uh what's that book with uh john eldridge was that book mac uh, uh brave uh no it's not brave okay oh, cra- oh. Uh, it's the about about being a man. It's the man book. Yeah, it's the man book. Everyone reads it. John Eldridge. What is it called? Um, Wild at Heart. There we Wild, go. We bra- I was gonna it. say Brave at Heart. That's not it. <laughs> That's not it. Uh, Brave at Heart. But um, like every like the, he says that thing about there's three things every man you know longs for. He longs for an adventure, a beauty to save, 
Um, and then there's one other thing, but the big thing that I always take away in that book is that a little boy or a growing up, you know, young adolescent man always is asking himself, do I have what it takes? Mm. And then a woman growing up always asks herself, am I worthy of saving? And mm. those are the two inner dialogues in, you know, both genders growing up. Um, and so in that, do I have what it takes really lacks a little bit of an identity and so mm-hmm. in us growing up, that was probably the deep rooted question we all had of like, do I have what it takes to even be like my earthly father? Yeah. Um, but then even expanding upon that, do I have what it takes to even mean something? And so then you find your identity in Christ. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is like in him, we find our true self in him is when you become you, it, you are not you yet until you are in him. And so you are a fake you, which is wild to think about, but until you are in Christ, you are not you. Right. Yeah. Okay. What? Yeah. That was what he said. He said, he said in, in that sense, which I don't want to take this to mean this sort of Gnostic thing where like Jesus came so that you could live your true self, you know, which I think is a direction that people go, what it, what it, what C.S. Lewis talks about is about it all is based in this idea that because I think that I think that there's a tendency among certain groups in Christianity now to sort of um, like rubber stamp choices and behaviors that people have under the banner of, well, you're just being your true self and Jesus made you to be truly you. That's what he died for. But that's not what he's talking about. No, 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 no. He's talking about transformation. Right. A trans- it, yeah. it demands a it demands a what what C.S. Lewis says in the very beginning of, I think it's mere Christianity. It could be in one of his other books, but he said, he said the unrepentant soul is not just a bad person that needs a little bit of reformation. They're a, a, um, a belligerent that needs to lay down his arms. Mm. And that's what, that's the type of thing that C.S. Lewis, and that is what enables that transformation. So just Mm. want to say that let's, yeah, you want to do the, let's do the fence thing. The fence thing is awesome. So, um, anyone that's listening, if you have time, um, Chesterton never accused himself of being a, um, a prophet, (laughs) um, or even uh, prophetic. Um, but there's so many things that Chesterton, that GK Chesterton said throughout his life, uh, that ended up coming true. Uh, he predicted World War II. Um, he predicted uh, like he, he predicted a lot of things. But anyways, so um, if you have time, YouTube it. It's a fun little watch um, about like prophecies fulfilled by G.K. Chesterton. Um, anyways, uh, so Chesterton, this is a big. Um, this is one of his big logical reasons why he's a Catholic. Um, and it makes sense, but it also makes sense on the other end of reformation mm-hmm. to dispute it. But this is what he says. Uh, he talks about, um, two men, uh, and there's this one man, uh, who owns a fence and there's this other man who, I don't know if he works for the guy. I think he might work for him. This other guy who is a friend of his, uh, comes up to him and he's on the other side of the fence and he's like, I'm going to take down this fence cause it makes no sense to me. Why do you have this fence here? Let's take this fence down. There's no purpose in it. I don't see it doing anything. This fence isn't, it, it has no true reason. I'm taking down this fence. Right. And the fence isn't around anything, right? It's just freestanding. Yep. It looks like in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It looks like, like to me and you, to me, Mac and KJ, we'd be like, yeah, I mean, I don't see a reason for the fence if we aren't with the owner of the fence. 
Um, and then the owner of the fence is like, for that reason alone, I will not allow you to take down the fence. If you come back here and you tell me why I have the fence, I will allow you to take it down. Mm-hmm. If you still would like to take down the fence. Yeah. Um, and so that is a little bit of his reasoning on what happened with the reformation, um, was that they took down a fence and they didn't know the true reason of the fence. Mm -hmm. Um, can you see that? Like, can you take that side KJ, uh, with, you know, with Luther and the 95? Oh, I would say that the reformers, I would say that the reformers would respond by saying, we, we see exactly what's going on with this fence and could explain. I would think that that would be their argument, right? Cause they're, mm-hmm. cause they're running up on specific things. And now whether you can go to the point of saying, you know, the, 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 the real question is, is was it appropriate for them to start their completely own thing and completely depart from the, from the church. But I would say that their argument in response to him would be, do we see what the fence is? We know what the problem is and we're tearing this down because there's, there's issues with the fence. The fence is rotten. It's, you know, it's got whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, actually that, yeah, I would think that that would be their defenses. They would say they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. I think, I think you're right too. I think that's what they would say. Um, and, and so, but in all of that, like, I, I believe it is honorable for G.K. Chesterton to take that stance on having a, on the on the fence uh, theology. I think it's logically sound. I think it makes sense. Um, I I'm on the other end of it, um, but I agree with his logical conclusion. Yeah. Um, it's not something that's absurd to me, dude. And Chesterton, the more I think about it, he's such a perfect example of why we even want to do this like why we want to dive into these different traditions and stuff like that because we're a part we're firmly rooted in the protestant tradition we're a part of the wesleyan church which is an offshoot of the methodist church which is an offshoot of the anglican church which is like dude we're protestants and so but we're reading chesterton and you read his stuff and you're like dude this guy knows and loves jesus and has some crazy stuff to say and yet he was convinced that the reformation was like a tragedy yeah. And so I think that a big thing that we're facing that we're trying to grapple with these interviews with people that we're having and with our explorations of the different traditions is we see we have this kind of weird um like dissonance that we experience as we look at someone like we love Chesterton. Yes. And but he's convinced that the the and we and we see that there's value in what he has to say. And yet at the same time, he's convinced that the tradition that we're a part of is like fundamentally wrong. And how do we square these two things? And I think that uh, this, you know, us, uh, us facing that kind of dissonance that we're experiencing is a big reason why we're doing this. And so he's such a cool example of a dude that illustrates what the actual value is in us thinking through this stuff. Mm So one of N.T. Wright's things on that. Um, so N.T. Wright, um, if you guys get a chance, he's he's a, he's, a, he's also another heavy read. Um, Anglican. Yep, Anglican. We're finding ourselves in love with Anglican these, these days. Um, but uh, so N.T. Wright, his like big thing on on a little bit like there's some things he doesn't agree with, of course, theologically, which K.J. and myself might all in Mac might also not agree with theologically. But uh, his thing is the fact of how can we get to the point of having communion together? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that is like the, that would be like getting us to like an apostolic creed level with the Catholic church. Yeah. Like, okay, we both believe in the apostolic creed. Cool. We, but since we believe in that, can we take communion together? Catholics say no. We we say yes. Right. Um, we're like, yeah, like if you come to our church, you can. And so I don't want to go too deep into communion and everything like that today, but that is where NT right stands on it is like, can like once we get to that spot that's when unity can happen a little more aggressively right and i think that it's one of the areas that's one of the areas where we kind of push up against a boundary in this thing that we're trying to do with this whole unity um and like one of the a great example of this even in our own lives was um we every year now we've started for the last two years we've started a tradition in our town so we've got a really cool unity thing going on in our town where we've got a bunch of local churches like i think it's up to six or seven of them now that will come together and do events um and we have the last two years last year and this year we did a good friday service and um we're at this Good Friday service, and it was awesome, great worship. bunch of the bunch of the pastors from these churches shared words. It was great, but I was like sitting there, and it's it's coming to the middle of the service, and I'm like, dude, this is the day that Jesus, his body was broken and his blood was poured out. It would be awesome if we could take communion, but we can't. Right, and so, you know. I don't know. That's one of the things where like when we're here, it's like, yeah, we can talk about unity and we can admire the Lutheran church and we can admire the Catholics and we can admire the Anglicans. But where the rubber actually meets the road is like, dude, we can't like when we have a Good Friday service together, we can sing the same songs. We can sit in the same room. We can do whatever, but we can't do that. And uh, yeah, I think that that's a huge I think you're right. I think that it 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 demonstrates the position that we're actually in as far as unity is concerned. And I really I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're just laymen in a local church here. Yeah. I don't know what the, what the step is, uh, so I don't, in that, in that direction. Or if there needs to be one, is that what you're, what I, you're no, I mean, like, I want no, to know. I, I do think if you're talking about total unity within the church, there does need to be a unity in that in communion. Yeah. But, um, I, I don't know that it could happen because the, at the end of the day like in catholicism there's a you know the transubstantiation of like the body and blood the bread and the wine changing physically to you know body and blood of jesus like that's a non-negotiable mm-hmm. and it's hard for protestants to get on board with that to meet them where they're at and but i think that um you know i know you don't want to get into communion a lot but it's almost like admirable it's like hey like we we are not budging from this because this is what we find to be true and if we cannot agree on this then we can't take communion together and and even though like you know i get you know we go to a protestant church we're part of this wesleyan you know um denomination it's like you know my reverence for communion is still extremely high you know you know, I don't know if it was, you know, going to church and, you know, in a Catholic church or, or whether it's just, you know, but, but I do feel like when I take communion, like the presence of God or, you know, the presence of 
the Holy Spirit and Jesus, like the Trinity is there while I'm taking it. And I take it very seriously. Like I don't come to the cup and wine. It's just a symbol that we do on, you know, some Sundays. It's like, no, this is like one of the most important things we can do. But even with that stance mm-hmm. of like, I take this extremely seriously and I do think God's presence is here. That's still not good enough to be able to take communion like with my family, you know, who are still Catholic, you know, like that even there's just, uh, too much of a discourse. So I I don't know. Uh, Yeah. And, and yeah, and so that's what that's, yeah, it is. That's, that's where, that's where things really, we're, we're at an impasse is when it comes to those, those crucial, um, yeah, those crucial issues like that. Yeah. And and so, like, the question is, like, can there be unity without total unity? Um, and Chesterton would probably say no. Chesterton himself would probably say no. Yeah. And that's, and I think that that's a big part of why he is, I think that's a big part of why he is a Catholic. Or, I don't know. And I, I think that, frankly, that is the strongest, that's, like, the strongest argument in defense of Catholicism for Western Christians. Yeah. Like I, I heard a dude say the other day, I was listening to this this podcast, and it was a, it was a, I don't know who the, I don't know exactly who the two guys were. One of them was a Catholic theologian. It was a YouTube like a conversation, and this dude gave this example. He said, "Listen," he said, he said the basic way, and this is probably unfair, but the basic story was uh, the Catholic guy's defense was he said, "Hey," he said, "Imagine you're in a family, which you are. You're in a family. Yep. You've got a, you've got a, an uncle who is." Um, who is an like an alcoholic and a jerk, and he abuses the people in your family. the The way that the Protestant tradition has historically gone about things is they distance themselves by, from that by actually splitting off and leaving. And the Catholic Church recognizes, hey, yes, Uncle Bob was, yeah, Uncle Bob's my uncle. It doesn't matter that he's a scumbag. I'm not taking the easy out and just saying I'm going to do my I'm going to start my own family apart from him and he was the basic it was a basically a unity thing where he was saying if the church is actually going to be one church we need to be able to grapple with that and I don't I, yet again I'm I'm I've come to a point where I'm I'm comfortable in the Protestant uh tradition but I don't know that's uh, that's one of the more um that's a compelling I think that's a compelling argument I think that one affected you a lot I remember when you were thinking about that um, I yeah, I just wanted to make a joke so bad when you said Uncle Bob's a drunk. I wanted to be like, uh, Bob's your uncle, <laughs> <laughs> and Bob's your uncle. Uh, the uh, the old adage. Um, but yeah, so like that idea of like where the like Catholics would look at the Protestants as the ones that you know serve the divorce papers, right? And we're like, hey, like I don't want to be in relationship with you anymore. When the Catholics were like, probably like, hey, like. I, I don't know how true this is like maybe the heart was more like hey let's talk this out before a schism but honestly speaking that's what everyone knew what was going to happen um even yeah. though luther said luther said i did not want it i did yeah, not want to leave and that is and i i think that he's sincere in that I, we have no reason to doubt his convictions um 
about that, that he didn't want to leave. And I think that, so then the Protestant angle is that from like a providential lens, if you're looking at it as God leading the church through history, you view the Reformation as a moment where God was taking an opportunity to actually purify the church. And I think there's a strong argument to be made there because not only these Protestant churches that come out of it and have they had their problems or is that Catholic dude kind of right about the Uncle Bob thing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the, the, um, the sectionalism and the, the, denominationalism denominationalism that's broken down stuff like that but the protestant angle is that the lord was using that reformation as a way to push the church onward and you see it not only have a positive impact on the protestant churches that come out i mean it create the the fact that the protestant churches existed created the opportunity for me to become a christian and um but even beyond that, it created a purity inside the Catholic Church. It did, Council of Trent. And so, so all that to say, I'm not. I I, I felt like I was um, unfairly taking the Catholic side. I wanted to. I want to back that up and just say I'm not. I'm not. You know, we're. I think that there are. I think there's reasonable arguments on both sides, and obviously, I'm comfortable in the tradition that I'm in. Yeah, that's 100 percent true. Like, I think the reason that we lean to try and uh give grace or even take a catholic side on this podcast is because we're not and so we, we want to you know not feel like that uh if you are catholic and you're listening to this that like we're against or we're you know like not have, letting a seat be at the table right right and it doesn't just start and end at catholics i mean it's people from all the different traditions right we would do that we, we would take the same line with guys that are more kind of in the reformed tradition that we are all those yeah, kinds Baptist, of different things we want to do yeah. the same we want to give that same yeah to, to everyone yeah exactly um so something pretty cool to jettison a little bit here uh to go forward a little bit more um something kind of cool here uh we t we touched on it um was a little bit about uh chesterton's prophetic uh just prophetic nature mm -hmm. uh even though he wasn't trying to be but i kind of am on the side of like if you write enough things um like you're gonna write some random dope things that are going to happen um yeah all, uh, he he wrote a lot of stuff and all of it was mostly brilliant yeah um and so uh it was actually quoted um if anyone ever wants to look up this video it was quoted by i don't know if she's the president or the prime minister of Italy now um, she's a, a woman uh, is it prime minister or uh, or is it president I don't Italy? know what the Italian government structure is like at all I think it might be president whatever we know so she quotes the executive so she's up there and she's like she's talking and she's giving like her inaugural speech and she's like you know I'm not allowed to be a woman I have to be a statistic or a number or I have to be birthing woman i have to be this i have to be that i can't be mother i can't be christian i can't be daughter you know and so she's giving this you know you know visceral speech to everyone in italy about like no like our identity is not a, cons a consumer she's like preaching against consumerism mm -hmm. okay and she's like our identity is not that you are not a, a statistic a number of this you're a mother you're a christian you're a daughter you're these things mm -hmm. and then she's like you know, to quote, and she doesn't say Chesterton, but she goes, to quote somebody, she quoted Chesterton. No way. She quoted Chesterton. Hey, she's probably a Catholic. She's gotta yeah. be. Italy, Italian. Italian. Yeah, gotta quote Chesterton. She goes, she goes, um, uh, uh, the Chesterton quote goes, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so give me a little grace. Yes. Um, there will be, there will come a time when, um, when fires are kindled together to prove two plus two equals four. 
and then there will come a time to prove that grass is green or, uh, that grass is green in the su summertime and swords will be drawn for it and she goes the time is now we are ready and that's a chesterton quote where he says there's going to come a time in human history where fires will be kindled to prove two plus two equal four and that swords will be drawn to prove that grass is green in the summertime and what has happened is the self-assurance and the self-confidence of man has created its own religion its own set of beliefs that have fit inside this structure of society mm -hmm. pick whatever you guys want to pick and think about whatever you think i'm talking about right and you can draw your line to whatever it is it's 2023 um but has gotten to there because of this self-confidence in man has created a confusion in man mm -hmm. and this confusion in man which solely is directly from your own personal making yourself god by your self-confidence has created the necessity that we actually have to draw swords about things that were we have known to be true since the beginning of time and so and so for and for, for chesterton to even write something like that yeah uh back then like there was not too much like there was probably stuff going on that i'm not overwhelmingly you know aware of but there wasn't you know the same situations where we th see just like logically we're like oh my gosh how could you think that mm -hmm. that makes zero sense yeah but i think the philosophical movement that modern so that's that modern philosophical movement was was totally um was totally in the swing and that was a quote one of my things i wrote down i was saddam told me that he had been reading this book orthodoxy by Chesterton, that it was so incredible so i i got the, i downloaded the audiobook yeah. and i was just powering through it and and uh i didn't catch everything but uh, you know anytime something hit me i would just like pause and and one of the things that i wrote down was that he said uh he said modern thinkers doubt everything such as not to know anything and so he was basically saying that what has happened. So a lot of his early stuff in this book is a critique of modernism mm -hmm, yeah. as a philosophical framework. And what he what he basically says is if if you if you begin to doubt the very fundamental things about about reality, you get to a spot where you have to question everything down to the littlest thing, other than yourself. And then, and then eventually, even yourself. So you end up you end up in a spot where you can't you can't verifiably make any claims about anything. And uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. I, th I thought that quote was perfect for in what you're saying. So in what he expounds upon on that is is Christianity. And what he says is in Christianity, what happens is you. And we talked about this a little bit more earlier in the podcast. But he says you have the ability. Mm -hmm. to have these things that are known for sure right. but also to give up the unknown yes. to give up the unknown and not have to worry about it or think about it if something is unknown because within faith and within christianity the unknown is beautiful and fine yeah yeah and the example he gives of that what, what is it one of the ones that he gives early on sorry calvinist is uh oh yeah sorry calvinist. Is, he, he he's a calvinist yeah. hater big time calvinist yeah. hater but uh, to be, but he says that free will is a great example of that, mm -hmm. where he says that, dude, we're faced with these, with these weird facts, which is that there's a God who is, who is steering this ship toward its destination. And we know that it's ending somewhere. And yet we, we are, we have this understanding that we somehow have free will. And he is, he's basically saying his critique of the Calvinists is that they rationally 
explain themselves out of something that is so fundamental that it should just basically like be taken a priori, which is that we have free will and that Christians historically have been willing to embrace that kind of mysticism, but modern humanist rational Christians are are not willing to do so. And that was a big a big critique that he he launched. Yeah, he. If you are, uh, if you if you believe in um, a Calvinist theology, uh, and you read like the first three pages of this book, you're gonna feel like shots have been fired at you. Um, but that's 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 him, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's um, I it mean to be fully transparent. KJ and myself, we aren't Calvinist. Mac isn't either. Um, and so. But we would be perfectly comfortable yeah. having a yeah. Calvinist dude. We we fully intend, in fact, to have Calvinist folks on here. Um, we have had Calvinist folks on here, and you guys may not have even have known it. Did we? Yeah, we have. And so that's the thing about it all, right? That's the thing about it all. Um, that that like you can have uh, those kinds of people together and really still focus on the main thing. It, it, it's 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 very interesting, but. Anyways, um, Mac, did you have something that you wanted to say there for a second? Uh, no. Well, um, just to, I mean, you guys are far more versed than Chesterton, and I've kind of thought this through. And for me, I'm you know hearing a lot of his stuff for the first time. So just to kind of circle back to like the fences thing. Okay. With, oh yeah, let's go with the you know quote from you know the Italian prime minister. You know, it's like we're gonna get to a point where we are gonna. Uh, draw swords on whether the gra- the leaves of the trees are green, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like there, uh, you know, there's a lot of hot topics currently where we're debating whether the leaves on the tree are green or mm-hmm. not. And Chesterton, you know, on, on, you know, one side, we're saying, well, there's a fence up here. And they're like, let's take the fence down. Yeah. And we're like, hey, you go tell me why the fence is up here. Yeah. And, you know, then come back and tell me that you know why it's up and maybe I'll let you down, let it down. Mm -hmm. And we're like, hey, you guys don't even understand why the fence is up if you're taking that stance. Sure. And so is that, is that kind of where we're going? I think that fits perfectly. Fits fits perfectly. And the perfect example for what you just said is just marriage. Is, is is the absolute perfect example yeah. is 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 the ongoing debate um with homosexual marriage like that is the like i don't know when it became a thing uh like what early 2000s like it started becoming legal i don't know whatever uh but anyways that was um the fence and when you find yourself and this is what chesterton will say about this uh chesterton chesterton will say uh it's in chapter two of uh orthodoxy in chapter two of orthodoxy he goes deep into the mind of a maniac um and he uses he he uses these words um not because uh, he thinks people are maniacs, but he wants to go to the furthest end of the thinking of somebody and just make it, you know, like, hey, this is where that thinking goes to. And so let's just take, for example, the madman. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he takes examples of madmen and tells you about how to talk to them yeah. instead of uh, what you would want to do. So, for example, on marriage. Right. We tried to explain the fence. Um, and we're in the explanation of the fence. We have achieved nothing because we're explaining the fence like that. And this is what Chesterton would say. Okay. Um, maybe not ourselves. Um, but what he's saying is you, you would have to approach instead of saying, no, like 
marriage is for a man and a woman and it's scriptural and the term marriage is actually from the Bible. So it's actually a Christian word and it's actually a, a Christian meaning. If we did that, uh, which is what most people are trying to do right. instead of stepping into a different argument, which would be explaining their lot, explaining what their situation would be like if it was true for them. Right. And so what do you mean? Hold on. Break that down. So let me break it down with he gives an example of um, uh, a maniac thinking he's Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And so there's a maniac that thinks he's Jesus Christ. Ooh, right. I love this. Yes. It's so good. Uh, and this crazy guy's like, I'm Jesus Christ. And it wouldn't work for you to go up to that maniac who says, I'm Jesus Christ to be like, you're not Jesus Christ. The whole world denies you. You're not Jesus Christ. The maniac would be like, well, the whole world denied Jesus, so that makes sense. Yeah, I am Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so that theology, um, or not theology, that thought process, a maniac can give you um, uh, reasoning for himself that makes sense to himself, yet it's not conclusive, but it won't provide answers. And so... I quote right here. Is that the same quote? Did, off the dome, did I quote it? Um, you go ahead and go, go ahead and read it in one second, though. Yeah, um, no, no, no. And so... Instead uh, of telling that maniac who believes he's Jesus, instead you tell that maniac, what a, what, a, what a shame, what a small God you are. If you are Jesus Christ, that is just so sad that your lot is that you're in misery right now and that you have no control over your future and that you're a God that can't change any kind of situation for himself. That is, that stinks, huh? And through that, that type of approaching the subject that maniac can be relieved and released of his mania because he's like maybe i'm not jesus because this does kind of this isn't going my way yeah so go go ahead the, the quote that i wrote down was that the he and he was in that quote he's so so in those early chapters he critiques two two different modern philosophical things simultaneously or not simultaneously but in in the beginning and in that one, he's talking about materialism, and and the quote was that the materialist understands everything. Wait, 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 wait. Tell us what a materialist is. Okay, so someone who believes that all that there is to know, it, or all that all that exists is the material world, and and that um, I mean, there's different things. The one that he was really nailing down on was the determinist, like materialist people who are basically folks who say that all that there is is matter. And because all that there is is matter, it everything that is going to happen is fixed and determined. And so um, if you have a thought and then you act on that thought, well, the only reason you're actually doing that is because you've got these neurons firing in your mind and they're telling you what to do. So everything is determined. And so what he says is that, and, it, and this was, I think, directly related to that example you just gave was he said that the materialist understands everything in a world that is obviously smaller than our own. So in the world where the man, the man who, who thinks himself to be Jesus and the fact pattern that he's following is Jesus was, was considered to not be the Messiah by everyone who, or by the majority of people who ran into him, the majority of people who run into me don't think I'm the Messiah, thus I'm Jesus. He gets that fact pattern. He's got it down. He perfectly understands his world, mm -hmm. but his world is just way too small. Yeah. And Chesterton's critique was that that whole material determinist thing that that entire worldview is is uh your 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 view of reality is just too small 
Yeah, and, and so he, and then he goes more about mysticism in that same uh, in that same argument where he talks about the freedom in mysticism. Yes, um, which is where he gets into the free will stuff too. Yeah, where he gets into the free will, the free will, and all that. But the the reason I, I bring this whole thing up mm-hmm. is Chesterton probably would have disagreed with the defense of the fence in the example that we gave earlier of marriage he probably would have gone with the defense that we just talked about. I don't know how to word a defense for that right now, um, and I, I'm not going to try. Um, but that would be the route that Chesterton, I would believe, would take. Um, there, there is a, such a fine line between like Christian philosophy, which is what we're doing in a lot of today. You're going to notice we're not yes. talking too much about the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly Christian philosophy um, and yeah. apologetics. Um, there's, there's real, it's a blurred gray line. So like, as you're like listening to us today, some of this stuff could come across as apologetics, which is, uh, apologetics is just the defense of the, of your faith, um, and how to do it, um, in a logical and sound way. Um, and then Christian theology is more high thought, um, Christian philosophy. Ph- yeah. Sorry. Christian philosophy is just more high thought and just more, um, it's more broad and ethereal. Yeah, and I think that what a lot of the Christian philosophers do, and they do well, like when when we read this book, like I was listening through it, I didn't hear any, um, I didn't really hear any scripture references. And not saying that that it's a bad thing to defend the faith from the no. Bible, but it seems like Chesterton had his eyes open to his audience and knew that if he was going to make an argument that was actually going to hit with people, it was going to be a philosophical one that was that was rooted in in philosophy not necessarily just in exegesis of the scripture or whatever and um yeah i think it i think it leads to really persuasive stuff it's to a broad audience to a broad audience it's incredibly persuasive and uh like specifically if we're going to take the madman that thinks he's jesus christ again like you can do apologetics there Uh, and apologetics you could defend you could tell him why he's wrong scripturally Right. right or you can go with the chesterton way of philosophy of of really diving into the mind of a maniac and or in 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 convincing in a convincing way yeah for sure yeah so i think um another good place to jump to unless kj you have any kind of quotes you want to rip off right now no i mean i'm scrolling through i'm i'm scrolling through my um I'm scrolling through my stuff. I mean, there's a, he, he had a lot to say about modernity that I think impacts today. But if you've got somewhere else to go, let's go where, where you've got. Okay. Um, so we could jump into a little bit more on uh, materialism. Um, and uh, and I, I, I think we've been really broad on mysticism. Um, and so we can kind of run after that dog a little bit. Um, and why Christianity being mysticism is amazing. Um, and so for you, for everyone that's listening, that doesn't know, and you're a Christian, um, you believe in a mystic faith. Um, I'm going to pull up. Oh no, there you go right here. So he has a couple quotes right here. Um, where he says, Christianity, which is very, which is a very mystical religion has nevertheless been the religion of the most practical section of mankind. It has far more paradoxes than the Eastern philosophy uh, philosophies, but it also builds better roads. And so his, his two cents there is 
it is one not only the most practical religion right the the most just like makes sense that's easy or not easy but like that's that let's run with that but also it's mystical which in which that term just isn't practical being mystical is the unknown the mystery of god Mm -hmm. the the adventure of finding home right the home piece is not mystical that's your practical part right the adventure to find you know virginia beach when you left ocean city that's the mystical part Mm -hmm. right sure and so he even and so when he goes further he goes it has far more paradoxes than the eastern philosophies but it also builds far better roads and so when you're talking about a paradox it has far more inner questions and it has far more dialogue for your inner man for your inner being where you find yourselves in in conundrums with your own faith and you find yourselves in like almost like contradictory ways with what you believe and you're consistently in and out of a paradox i'm in paradoxes right now in my own faith but it has far better roads um it has far better roads uh than anything else and so those roads through those paradoxes um are 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 paved and are far better than than any eastern religion or any other kind of religion where you would those roads are really what leads to your answers of your paradoxes is what he's saying there. And so being in a paradox uh, in your faith, say you're in one right now, like that's a fun spot to be. And Chesterton would look at you admirably and be like, nice, you're in a paradox. This is awesome. God's continuing to grow you. And there's other Christian terms where, where we could use, like where God's even, I don't know if conviction would be the right word, but, or like, um, how would you, how would you describe that in a, in a in a better sense where like god is really like changing your mind about things and god's ministering to you um through your your mature you're maturing in your faith um i mean i i would just say that as far as regards what i've read from um chesterton i don't know it seems like what his it seems like what his call is is to have a openness to embracing those paradox oh my gosh there was a quote hold on hold on here we go here's here's the quote that i think is really good he says an ordinary slash sane man lives i wrote sane i think he says an ordinary man but he he he's he's using ordinary to mean people who embrace the fact that there is something like magical about our world i think he says sane okay okay so maybe i wrote ordinary okay the sane man the sane man lives half in fairy world and half in the material world. Yes. If he sees two things that seem to be true and contradictory, he will take them both along with the contradiction. Unpack that. So, I mean, I, I think that I'm so stuck in this free will channel that that's the one. Can you help me think of another example that we can work through this on? What he's basically saying is what a paradox is, is where you have these two things that are sitting next to each other that don't seem in any way that they can, they feel like they're mutually exclusive and yet they're both true. Yes. And so what, what he's saying is that anybody who is actually going to, is actually going to remain sane and not actually go nuts in some capacity has to be able to accept not just yeah has to be able to accept these 
paradoxical truths along with what feels like the contradiction that lies between them. Yeah, you can go ahead and do free will on that again. Like I mean, that's, free- I think we already explained that to a to a degree that folks will get what I'm saying if we say free will. I mean, because yeah. because the free Christ- will and sovereign, right? And the Christian conviction is that. Oh gosh, I don't want to say the Christian conviction because because there are traditions within Christianity that don't place as much emphasis on free will, but in the Catholic tradition and then also in all, a lot of the all the other Armenian traditions, mm-hmm. the idea is that God gave humans free will, and yet at the same time He is the author of history. He's uh, He is uh, what's the word sovereign throughout history, and He is steering humanity in the world and the world in a specific direction so we have these two truths which is one that humans are allowed to express themselves freely right and i believe that's true some people maybe don't believe that's true the determinist wouldn't believe that's true maybe certain i don't know i believe that's true and at the same time i do believe that god is bringing this thing where it's going he's steering the ship where it's going and i in order to i being the sane man i'm living half inside that fairy tale world and half inside that material world i'm willing to accept both of those things even though they're paradoxical on their face and i don't have any expectation that i'm going to understand the mechanics of it like how that works out i don't know that i'm going to be able to know that and so what i do is i then embrace the mystery i embrace the paradox of these two things are true even though they seem to me that they there's no way that these two things I don't I I personally don't get how those I don't get understand the mechanics how they work out I can try and explain it and people explain it different ways obviously you can go down the the uh more calvinist line where people lean more in toward the god is steering the ship and so they're willing to sacrifice the free will element in favor of the god sovereignty element or then you go to like the opposite end of that which is molinism which is like the opposite a scheme for explaining it which is basically that god can understand everything that would have happened even though it doesn't necessarily all happen and so he guides us through all of these individual choices simultaneously to me both of those efforts and i think the chesterton would agree with me that both of those efforts to try and systematize this paradox ultimately just degrade the mystery and the beauty of living life with a grip on the what what the heart of you know the christian christian belief about free will is i mean like pastor clark has even said to us uh, pastor clark uh Bazden is the pastor at the church that kj and i go to um he's even said like he like in his early walk uh with god he was like nervous of theology because he like he had this beautiful tender relationship with christ and he didn't want you know uh so like a million different people's theologies to come in there and mess up his relationship with jesus mm-hmm. Um, I think N.T. Wright puts it pretty, pretty cool when he talks about prayer. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because you're talking about, you know, how like sovereign God works with free will. Um, uh, someone asked him the question and was like, hey, like, like, how do we pray? Um, and if we pray, does God hear our prayers? How does that work? How what are the mechanics of prayer? And like N.T. Wright's like. Like I have a lot of prayer patterns and prayer books and journals and prayer journals and all these things, but this is where I come to in it. Uh, And he talks about God being, and you guys probably have heard this before, but he talks about God being um, this famous composer and, uh, and 
this famous composer, and he writes a concerto or whatever um, for his daughter, uh, and say you're his daughter, and he's trained his daughter up to be a brilliant world class violinist, and his daughter that he's you know poured into to train to be this world class violinist, he's joining it with her and giving her this concerto or concert or whatever you want to call it um and she is playing the notes that he wrote for her um and then in that is where the matrimony between both of you happen um now the daughter can choose to not play the right notes the daughter can choose to play to, to not even play the violin um, but in those two spots right there is kind of like the a, a good worldly um, analogy of God operating with man, um, but at the same time, like God is such a good composer that He can go with it and go into a different spot and go into a you know a bridge or a big break or whatever, or change it, change the chord structure, whatever it looks like. Um, but I think that also operates in, and I don't want to try and explain the mechanics of sovereignty and free will, but I, in, in, in my mind, if I, ha if I'm gunned to my head trying to explain it, that's kind of where I would go to, um, is God is I'm just trying to play this concert that God wrote for me and, in yeah. you know, and whatever, you know, missteps happen throughout, it's still going to be beautiful. What do you think, Mac? It kind of, um, it brings, uh. You know, I don't. You know, we've been more philosophical, but it just kind of reminded me of, um, like David. You know, and David, um, you know, uh, sleeps with Bathsheba, and you know, that's not God's will for God to, for for David to yes. sleep with Bathsheba right. and then have Uriah killed. Like that's not God's will for that to happen. But what does God do? He he. Uh, Bathsheba births Solomon, right? And Sol and through David's, you know, thing that went against God's will, God takes that and and has Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple for the Lord, and you know, and you know, look at all of the the proverbs, you know, and like all the good things that came out of Solomon, and it was like, you know, God kind of used David's free will abandonment of what god had in store for him and used it for good mm. yeah and and in the end ultimately leads to jesus yeah yeah through yeah. that same very through that very same exactly line that act of infidelity towards the lord yeah it still serves as the seedbed for his ultimate i, I just want to point out one thing though because and i think that it demonstrates yet again the point of why it's important to embrace the embrace the because anytime we start to do these things like like you're like the the composer example yeah right where that begins i think to fall apart and where someone could maybe critique that would say all right well listen if if the composer let's say the composer writes a piece of music and then the musician plays a completely different thing they just go off off script and don't play it are they still playing the composer's you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. so that's where, that's why I'm saying, that's why, where I'm kind of at on it and why I admired Chesterton's thing so big is that these attempts at systematizing it, not e not even that that's a bona fide real life, that's not the right word, but not even that that's a, a serious attempt at systematizing it. Um, I think that you start to see, you know, weak spots in, in all of them, even with dudes who, yeah, I don't know. So that's that was what yeah. I was thinking as we were going 
yeah, and we like going through it, and like like just to give like NT Wright some credit, like NT Wright was like, hey, this is what I do. Like yeah, NT Wright's like, like he's not saying that this is like this is a fact, Jack. And I'm sure that if if I were in that if I were in that conversation with him and I asked that question, he would have a really good response to it. I'm not even doubting that. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's so funny. I didn't know NT Wright's name was Tom for the longest time, and then people kept calling him Tom, and I'm like, who are we talking to? and so he writes under two names actually he writes under nt Wright for his like uh very like um like scholastic or like study books and then he writes under tom for his like more like regular books i guess we love authors with initials up front oh we do cs jrr Dude, JK. KJ Williams. KJ Williams. <laughs> that's promising. I already, I already got a, a lead on everyone. That's my, that's what I go by. Like, you, that's my name. Did you, did you feel a little Holy Ghost bump there, or, or no? No, but maybe I will <laughs> in the future. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start like trying to get the hairs on the back of your head to stand up. Um, so I, I know we're, we're getting to a spot here, but um, I do want to talk a little bit about Chesterton in a less. I guess it's still pretty uh, philosophical, but like in a in a more down in your bones kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably one of his most famous quotes, but um, he'd said, uh, "It has been often said, very truly, that religion is the thing that makes the ordinary man feel extraordinary. Hmm. It is equally important. It is an equally important truth that the re- that religion is the thing that makes the extraordinary man feel ordinary." Um, and there's also, <clears throat> and I don't know if he's like a big fan of, um, Count Zinzendorf or not, but Count Zinzendorf has a, a has a pretty similar quote, uh, even in that as well, where Count Zinzendorf is talking about like, uh, the need for God. Um, like as you, like, uh, your need for God, as you meet God, um, it expands even greater and your debt towards God expands even greater. But in that, um, I feel like Chesterton probably thought of himself as an extraordinary man and was longing to feel ordinary. Like for myself, I was an ordinary man and like, I don't know, like, I'm, but like I'm both, right? I'm both at the same time because like, we walk through seasons where we feel extraordinary, uh, but then we also walk under being humbled by God and God's like, hey, like humility, humility. Like, like say you're in a season right now where everything's going right for you, whether it's in your ministries, whether it's at work and your family and all these things and, and, and everything's going good. God is going to bring you to that spot of gratitude and humility. Um, but then say you're a person that, you know, you're drunk, you're, you know, you're, you've just gotten divorced and you're, or you're a person that just, you know, works a regular nine to five minimum wage job and, and you just feel like just an everyday man, a regular ordinary man, God will take you to the spotlight. You're much more than that. You're much more than you think you are. Yeah. You, you are more than a conqueror. Like, and he uses words like that. Like he's called you into like a priestly class. Like these things were never for the ordinary man, never. But then at the same time, as you step into that, right? Like God still approaches you with this humility. And so I think with Chesterton, the philosophy of it all is now we have two contradictory. Now you're in a paradox again, where there's two things that seem contradictory, Mm -hmm. but are true, which makes Christianity even that much more appealing to the philosopher. 
um, because now we have another paradoxal truth. Yeah. Which is, I, I, I just, the, the, the deeper you go, the, 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 the more the mysticism and the, and the adventure just grabs you and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we'll never get to the end of it. Yeah. Mm. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. I got one more. You want to go? There was one more thing that I thought was, and this is a complete different change of direction, but I think that it may be the single most practical thing that we have, uh, we've touched on yet, which was, he goes into this whole thing about, um, oh gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to not be super precise here, but but it was basically, it's probably about a third of the way into the book. Um, and the the basic the basic idea is he he talks about how it's also a critique of modern people and it's about how um modern people have a tendency to focus on what they see as being they they see a big gap between what they the the good things that they experience and what they should be experiencing you know what I'm talking about? So he wrote a whole essay on this, but keep going. And I mean, the, he gave a bunch of examples of it, but I think that in it, and why I say it's practical is because I think that in it, he really models, um, he really models the way that Christian people, like if you actually buy into this story, it, but but he makes the argument that it should be universal, this appreciation, um, that you should be so like struck with the beauty of the life that you get to live that whatever it demands of you is shouldn't be too much to ask or whatever it costs. It shouldn't be too much to ask. And the, he gives a bunch of examples about how, like he says, that the people of his time were super revolutionary. Like everybody wanted to revolt because they saw that things weren't the way that they expected them to be or that they should be. And he was like, it never even crossed my mind to have that kind of thing because I looked at my life and the things I got to experience were so incredible that like it just, it was like, how could I, how could I possibly rebel against this, this God or whatever, whatever force has brought me to the spot where I get to experience the life that I do. Like, and then he gives a bunch of different examples. Like he says, he said, why, why should, why should, you know, if, if Cinderella at the ball got, was like, Hey, fairy godmother, why do I have to leave the ball at midnight? That's the spirit of revolution. Why do I have to leave the ball at midnight to which fairy godmother would say, maybe consider the fact that you're even going to this ball until midnight at all. Or, um, that's why he's a Catholic. Yeah. And he said, and he talked about even marriage, he talked about marriage there. Yeah. And in, in that he talked about marriage and about like, well, okay, I've got this good thing, which is my sexuality, but why does it have to be situated within me devoting myself to one woman for my whole life? And what wow. he says, his quote, which was rocked me. Wow. He said, he said, um, giving yourself to one woman, is a small price for even so much as seeing a woman. Like, like he was so even struck by the opportunity that he got to encounter the opposite sex that for, for him to give his life to one woman feels like it doesn't even, it, it pales in comparison to the, the beauty of even getting to know to, to even getting to see a woman, much less getting to know one intimately and live your life with one and, and, you know, and stuff like that. And I'm like, dude, that's, that's like the Christian, that, that is the Christian ethic around gratitude. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's what, you know, when you were talking in that, it's like, you know, when you come to know the Lord and, and, uh, you just 
have a, a renewed mind, you know, and your renewed mind is at a spot of grateful uh, or like thankfulness for what you got, you know, and yes. like, mm-hmm. you know, instead of saying like, um, yeah, I, I just feel like you can do that on so many levels, like down from, you know, um, you know, everyday little tasks Mm -hmm. all the way to this idea of marriage. And it's should always be out of a spot of, you know, I'm, I'm even, you know, instead of like being unhappy at your job, it's like, Hey, I'm thankful I even have this job. Dude, it's a miracle that I have it. Yeah. Like it's crazy that I get to do this. Exactly. (sighs) And, and yeah. And, and, uh, and I remember having a, a, a personal experience where this really like drove home for me where, like uh this was like uh a year and a half ago now my wife and I had a baby that was stillborn right and so it was hor- horrible worst thing we've ever gone through and I, and and it was it was tragic and I never experienced anything really hard before and then I but I remember clearly having this moment it was probably 2 weeks after us going through all that and we have this beautiful field out behind our house here and I remember sitting in that field with my two kids that I have Owen who's who's 7 now and Bethany who's 2 now and I was sitting out with them in that field just watching the sunset over the hill. And I thought, dude, if I don't care what it cost in pain to be able to get to experience this moment, it was worth it. Like this very thing. And I'm not saying that those things are related. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that folks who look at situations that are hard in their life and think, why, God, why did I have to do this are are in need of a you you've got to change your perspective and I remember looking at it and I was thinking dude I do not care what happens it was worth whatever it cost to get to have this one moment here experiencing actual genuine beauty and that's what like that was that was a moment that I encountered that but that's what Chesterton is calling people to all the time is like dude you should and the, the examples that he brings up are super super trivial like he talks about like getting to experience a blackbird singing and like, it, you know, it was like all these little things that he brings up and you're like, dude, that is someone who's living with their, with themselves awake to the wonder of a world that was made by God that loves you and made a beautiful world for us. Yeah. He, he hated the idea of success. And so like, um, Chesterton. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, like with what you're talking about, that, ca- that chasm from like, uh, that person who's like. Oh, I remember what you, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. I'm following you. Yeah, so that beginning of your thing where he talked about there's the person, he's looking for what he what he should have or, or get and all yeah. these things. Um, he hated, like, he's like, if you go to any local book stand or, you know, to buy books, there's thousands of books about guys that write books about success. Yeah. And they know very little about success and they know even less about writing books. Uh, <laughs> and coming from Chesterton, that's that's just gas. That's yeah, that good. is gas. Um, <laughs> and he, go, he goes, um, there's no such thing as success. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes, there is doing something and then there's not doing something. Mm-hmm. He goes, a, uh, a, a millionaire is not successful for, for the fact that he's a millionaire. He is a millionaire in the same sense that he's a millionaire, that a frog is the same, is the same that a frog is a frog. Like in saying that is just a thing that is true yeah, for that okay. person. And so he talks about the fallacy of success that, uh, what they, what they write about in these success books are like, first you need to have, like, if you, if you want to be a successful business owner, you need to. Um, you, you need to have a cutthroat mentality mm-hmm. and you need to, 
never stop and you need to win and work hard and he's like and they tell you very little about and they tell you very little a bit about how to build steam engines mm-hmm. because the guy that was a millionaire built that steam engine yeah right and so his his thing is if i'm going to play a card game i'm not going to read a book on how to be successful at cards i'm going to read the rule book yeah um and then i'll understand how to play cards and then you have two options become very talented or cheat <laughs> and he's like and those are your two options be talented or cheat and so his his the reason i bring this up is because he had a disgust for the term success mm-hmm. and he had a disgust and he called it the fallacy of success okay uh, that's the essay that i'm talking about it's called the fallacy of success um and his disgust for it branches out of what you're talking about yeah because it leaves a person longing and it leaves a person thinking that there's more. Yes. And it leaves a person ungrateful. Yep. And then if you take that and you take it to the fullest limit of it, then you will always be thirsting and you will never, never be satisfied. Yeah. And there was a quote in and there was a quote in uh, orthodoxy that was related exactly that those types of people, the success driven people, whatever, who say um, it it he never felt a conviction to take such people seriously because it never occurred to them to offer to pay for their pleasure by some symbolic sacrifice. And so what he was saying was that, that, that the, the example that he goes on to give is he says, um, Oscar Wilde, he would, he loves ripping people. He makes fun of a lot of people in this book by name, mostly himself, more himself yeah. more than anyone yeah. else, but he just rips yeah. people. And he said, he said, Oscar Wilde, the, the example that he gives illustrating this was, he said that, uh, Oscar Wilde said that no one no one really appreciates a sunset because you can't pay for it. And he said you can pay for it by not being like Oscar Wilde. <laughs> and so there's yeah. there is a debt of you pay a debt of gratitude yeah. in every one of these little things and those are the those are the types of people. I don't know. If there's if there is not any clearer signpost to a life that's been redeemed by Jesus. I don't I don't know of one other than that that seems to me to be more sure than that. Yeah. 100%. That's that's has your eyes open to the reality of of the sort of a existence that we get to live. Yeah. Well, <sighs> everyone, thank you so much for, you know, listening to this episode. Um I hope um I hope it draws you into a spot where you start thinking and believing in a manner that is grateful but also just in a in, in a level where you are excited about the adventure you're going out on and that you you feel this even more of a sense of surety about your faith with the contradictions and paradoxes that you are currently holding and that you don't understand right now there's things you don't understand right now about your own faith and that's the beauty of your adventure in your faith trust us we've been through it and we're going through it now and we're going to go through it some more with you guys and some at times there's going to be paradoxes even on this podcast Mm. um we love you guys and as always we have our guest pray us out and so mac you are our pseudo guest today even though you're more of just you know one of our best friends in the world and on the podcast and you're the only two time alive um (laughs) and so mac Uh. if you could do us the honor of praying us out yeah, yeah, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this podcast and for uh, Dom and KJ and uh, just for their um, their desire to know you better and uh, you know all the 
you know, the work that they've put in and, and reading, um, you know, these different theologians, it's, um, it's bearing fruit and, um, we just, uh, thank you for this desire to even have this podcast. Um, so, uh, Lord, we just ask that, uh, your, um, you know, your words, um, would be, uh, you know, on our heart and, um, it would, uh, fall on good soil and uh, we just ask that this podcast will be blessed. Um, and we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.